What's up, everyone? Look at Nando getting down, even though he's been up since, no, you went to bed at four in the morning? You were out till four when in the morning last night? I was out till four in the morning. I actually haven't got to sleep. I just came straight from the club here in I Mexico mean, City. that's very Miami of you. Um, so oh, I wouldn't yeah. expect anything less. <laughs> it's in my blood. Exactly, exactly. I'm like the Finnish prime minister, baby. You know, oh just uh, out till 4 a.m. Lost my phone. Uh, Dude, I love that story. So I love that story, too. We talked about it on TYT yesterday. And um, so for those of you who might have missed it, uh, Finland's prime minister is 36 years old. Yeah. And uh, she was getting and- some backlash because she was out clubbing all night. And uh turns out that someone who works... Closely with her, had tested positive for COVID, and uh, she had asked if she was supposed to quarantine. She was told she doesn't need to, so she went out and partied it up. Just partied yeah. it up. Yeah. No COVID, baby. You know, when you got no COVID, you party. Uh, I love it. You know, I'm glad the Finnish prime minister. I saw a picture of her cabinet, and and they're all, did you see the picture of her cabinet that that, no. that people were posting? Oh my god, it's great. It's like you know, she's 36, but she looks 25. Yeah. Um, and, and so like her cabinet's all women and they're all like, they all look like they're in their twenties. Um, it's pretty cool. I yeah. I guess, it. uh, you know, that, uh, social safety net, um, yeah. it, it helps you rest easy, you know, less gray yeah. hair. Um, yeah. she's actually the same age as, uh, Joe Biden, but you wouldn't know it right. because living in America right. really weathers exactly. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, you know, doing we- all those war crimes all the time, you know, it really takes a toll. <laughs> really yeah. does. Well, we've got a great show ahead for you guys today. Later, I will be interviewing Liz Featherstone. Uh, Nando will be talking about Saudi Arabia and how uh, we continue to sell weapons to uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, despite uh, all the brutality that's carried out by that country. And I will talk about, believe it or not, uh, the MLB. There's a lockout. Uh, there's a big labor dispute. And even though we're talking about professional athletes who clearly make more money than the ordinary American worker. I think the dynamics of that labor dispute is incredibly relevant, and I can't wait to talk about that. But before we do, Nando, before we do, <laughs> let's uh, get into this masterclass that Hillary Clinton is apparently offering. Yes. Um, and I'll try to be, no, I, I was going to say I'm going to try to be fair, uh, but you can't. As you watch these videos, as you hear the details of the story, how could you? So, Hillary Clinton is teaching what's known as a masterclass, okay? This is uh, a, an investor-backed uh, venture meant to uh, offer courses to anyone who's willing to pay for them. And the courses are taught by celebrities, public figures, politicians. Hillary Clinton is teaching one on um, resilience. And it's, <laughs> it's, believe it or not, believe it or not, And so as part of this, uh, she is going to read the victory speech that would have been the victory speech that she had prepared for the 2016 election. What would that speech be had she won? She apparently shelved that speech, but now she's reading it as part of the masterclass. She first promoted it on Twitter. Let's take a look at what the promotional video is. This was what I intended to say if I had been elected in 2016. My fellow Americans, today you sent a message to the whole world. I'm just going to toss it to you, Nando. <laughs> um, I I have never, uh, you know, I have never seen someone revel in their loserdom more than Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton is like one of the world's biggest losers, you know, in that she lost a, a presidential election to freaking Donald Trump. Okay, and. 
like a historic loss in terms of you know the the fundamentals of that race. Like, how could Donald Trump become president? You know, like it's still kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, and there's emerged this kind of cottage industry in the wake of that loss that it's like she was failed or, you know, that like she was failed, that she didn't, that she didn't fail, that she was failed. And, uh, and, and that she just kind of traffics on that so shamelessly all the time. And including with this, like, who does this? Like who, who, like how have you no shame? Have you no, uh, I don't know, self-awareness or any sort of, um, ability to recognize your role in the fact that Donald Trump, of all people, became president because of you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think, look, it's not like I, I, I sit around waiting for an opportunity to criticize Hillary Clinton. I actually never really think about Hillary Clinton unless Hillary Clinton makes me think about her. And in this case, she's just drawing more attention to an epic loss. And I guess that could be part of a class on resilience, you know, like look at how badly I failed and um, I was able to push through it. But the problem is she hasn't pushed through it. I mean, it's clear that in in various interviews that she's done um, following that epic loss, she's refused to really take responsibility for the failures of her own campaign. Jonathan Allen wrote a fantastic book that I'm, uh, I'm still reading right now. I'm about finished with it called Shattered. And it really details the failures of her campaign. But at the heart of those failures was the candidate herself who really had know why, right? Like, why did she want to become president? You know, she kind of had this sense of entitlement. Um, She felt that it was her role to be the next president of the United States. And there was like this unearned confidence that came along with it, the entitlement that came along with it, but more importantly, the unwillingness to kind of take a step back and ask herself, why am I running? And I need to share that why with the electorate, right? I need to make a case yeah. for, for, but she never really did that. And there were all sorts of, I mean, the infighting with that campaign, um, just like the internal conflict was pretty insane. So I highly recommend that book, but it's just weird to read a victory speech for an election that you lost, like let it go. Right. Find another way to teach this class. But nonetheless, um, she uh, spoke about her mother uh, quite a bit in the speech. And I'm really curious to see how uh, you're going to respond to this part. Uh, It's a little excerpt from it. Nando, let's take a look. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her. Taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. Mm. Mm. Now that is powerful. Yeah. Now that is powerful. (laughs) Okay. So she's talking to her mother, right? Who had an incredibly difficult life, incredibly difficult uh, childhood. Um, And there's a part of me that like feels sad watching that, right? Like I, you know, there, there's two camps. I feel like the camp that kind of like dunks on her for it. And then like, I'm tempted, but then there's also the part of me that's like, man, this is just such a devastating situation. Like it's embarrassing. It's devastating. It's awful. 
you're talking about the why, and it's just it seems very clear that for a long time, um, Hillary Clinton's life doesn't make sense without her being the president. You know, like she she put all her chips into that whatever you know pile. I guess is the the metaphor. Like she she like once she decided like this is what I'm going to be. Like her whole life and her whole identity and her whole sense of worth were wrapped up in that, and then she didn't get it. And now she just like, it's so painfully obvious. Like when you see her talk that it's just like her life is meaningless now, you know, that she had her life has no meaning and it is very sad. But uh, the, um, I just think like, you know, talking about her sense of entitlement, like when she's spoken about that, that election in interviews in the intervening years, you know, she basically takes it for granted that the Russians stole it. Right. You know, like she says that openly, um, and, like, that is as much of fake news uh, as, you know, like, about as much fake news as, like, you know, Donald Trump saying that the, the election was stolen from him. You know, that she can't she can't conceive of the loss without some nefarious actor taking it from her rather than her losing it. And, you know, until she kind of confronts that, her life will never have any meaning. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, and also, again, going back to the topic of resilience, resilience is the ability to get back up after a crushing blow. Right. And and in order to get back up, you have to recognize what went wrong in the crushing blow. So I'm just I'm actually really curious uh, what the entirety of this masterclass entails, because how do you teach resilience to uh, how does someone who has refused to take personal responsibility and who has refused to learn any lessons then move forward to teach a masterclass on resilience? Like, how do you power through something without learning lessons from the very thing that you went through? Like, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, what we're going to do on this show is we're going to buy the masterclass and we're going to do a live stream of you and I watching it and learning uh, from it. Uh, Kale, can you put up the, the promotional video for, for the masterclass? Because she's not the only one participating we got we got bill in the house we got george w bush in the house and uh former first lady laura bush we got all all the hits condoleezza madeline it's it's i cannot wait for this thing to come out um like the idea that they that they would do this with the freaking bushes you know like of course they would of course they would they love him they love him they love him it's it's the whole thing is just absolutely mind-boggling that this thing exists like we have to do a i don't know we have to do something about it like we have to do like a part maybe we'll just do like a party and uh and we'll invite people and we'll just like sit around and watch the master class together i think that could be fun the master class is honestly just it the only thing it's a master class in is how meritocracy in this country is a myth like in my opinion yeah. i mean it's like here are all these failed politicians who uh did awful atrocious things and they're you know we're gonna we're gonna pay them probably quite a bit of money i mean why else would hillary clinton do something in my opinion as humiliating as this unless she's getting paid for it significantly and even then like dude you've gone above and beyond to accumulate the kind of wealth that you have okay i mean how many people were harmed in the process of you accumulating that wealth I mean, yeah. you have like, you literally have a responsibility to go away and at least just like, go enjoy it, go enjoy it. I mean, what was the yeah. point of doing all of that? If you know, you're just going to be miserable and, um, you know, constantly remind people about your failure in 2016. 
We do have one other video I want to get to um, because she was uh, asked, why did you do this? Like, what was the point <laughs> of doing this? And obviously asked in a friendly way. And here's what she had to say. What compelled you to sit down and revisit that speech? Well, I wanted to be as helpful as I could to the viewers and to the process of being in a master class. So I worked on um, a speech that really was about my journey and had a, had a real emphasis on my mother's life and journey as a way of, you know, making it clear that, yes, I would be the first woman president, but I, I like everybody, uh, stood on the shoulders and lived the lives uh, and the experiences of those who came before us. Willie Geist's face and that was great. He was like, you know, like at one point. But I'm I'm wondering who the who the audience like who's paying for this? Master classes are not cheap. Um, they're like seventy bucks or something. Like they're uh, you know I don't know exactly how much they're, but they're not like two ninety nine um, mm-hmm. or something. They're 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 not cheap at all. So I'm wondering like who the audience for this is. Like who's the customer? I want to meet like that person who's like sees that promo and sees like. Oh, Laura Bush is in this. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm putting in the credit card info uh, and and buying this. Like, who is that person? I feel like that person doesn't really exist. I don't. I, I'm. I am curious about that. I'm wondering if like maybe some college lecturers or professors might buy it, like just to access some of the video content for their class. I don't know. I really don't. Uh, but maybe, maybe the audience is, uh, people like us who are just going to buy the classes to dunk on. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Um, Maybe we'll learn something. Maybe, maybe people are saying you'll learn something, you know, open your mind. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, let's move on to, uh, the rest of the show because we've got a lot planned for you guys today. Um, but before we do any of that, why don't we give a word to our partner Verso? Yeah, you want to learn something, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. Now is the perfect time to order gifts for all the radicals in your life. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months. And if you join in December, you'll get these books. The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, a chronicle foretold by Tariq Ali, essays on the tragedies inflicted on Afghanistan. Feminism and Nationalism in the Third World by Kumari Jayawardena, a founding text of transnational feminism. Democracy Against Capitalism, Renewing Historical Materialism by Ellen Makesons Wood. An Exploration of Capitalism as a System of Social Relations and Political Power. The Pristine Culture of Capitalism, a historical essay on old regimes and modern states by Ellen Mason's Wood. Ooh, a lively historical look at the contradictions of the capitalist system. Love it. Well, look, Nando, this week uh, there was quite a bit in international policy, uh, a lot of foreign policy news today, a lot on Russia. But there was a story that stood out to me that I thought would be perfect for you, and it was the weapons sale to Saudi Arabia. So why don't you take it away? That's what your decode's on today. Thank you so much for the suggestion and the assist on this one, because, you know, it's it's hard every week to come up with a topic to talk about. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the news, so I really appreciate it. But yes, President Joe Biden ran on holding Saudi Arabia accountable for the murder of Washington Post uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi and other various crimes. But meanwhile, 
The White House has released a statement condemning a Senate bill co-sponsored by Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders to block weapon sales to the country. Now, before we get to the details, let's take a trip down memory lane all the way back to November of 2019. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered. And I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Whoopsie-daisy. Looks like Biden was caught in a fib right there, right before the American people, because his White House is now demanding that Congress allow for $650 million in missile sales to the Saudis. This is from the Office of Management and Budget. The administration strongly opposes passage of SJ Resolution 31, a joint resolution prohibiting a proposed U.S. foreign military sales case to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia of defense articles, including 280 advanced medium-range to air-to-air missiles and related articles and services. Now, the weapons sold to the Saudis are being used in their war in Yemen, which the United States has helped them carry out. Saudi Arabia is also imposing a brutal blockade on Yemen, which is literally starving the country. According to UNICEF, 2.3 million Yemeni children are suffering from acute malnutrition as a result of the conflict, and the country's population is essentially being kept alive by humanitarian agencies. But the White House pretends as though it's in favor of diplomatic efforts to end the war in Yemen. In fact, back in February, shortly after taking office, Biden announced in a speech that he was going to end U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. President Joe Biden announced on Thursday that the U.S. would no longer support the Saudi Arabia-led military campaign in Yemen, a six-year conflict that's been widely seen as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we are ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. Now, this received much fanfare at the time, you know, and unlike, say, Afghanistan, only the real, real psychos are invested at all in the war in Yemen. Um, So there was very little pushback to Biden's announcement. Many people actually celebrated the move. But the devil, as they say, is in the details. And the key word in Biden's speech was offensive. It left a lot of room for the U.S. to continue to support Saudi Arabia in any defensive initiatives against Yemen. And it's clearly by now that the whole thing was kind of B.S., In the same memo condemning the congressional attempt to block weapons, the White House says the U.S. foreign military sales case at issue is fully consistent with the administration's pledge to lead with diplomacy to end the conflict in Yemen and end U.S. support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, while also ensuring that Saudi Arabia has the means to defend itself from Iranian-backed Houthi air attacks. Now, as we know, Uncle Joe's approval rating is in pretty bad shape, so maybe he could, you know, Pay attention to how Americans feel about arming the Saudis. Data for Progress actually has the numbers on that. They found that a strong majority of voters oppose the arms sales. Now, in the end, the White House and presumably the weapons manufacturers got what they wanted. Despite efforts by some lawmakers to block the weapons sale, the Senate put an end to that. Um, It sailed through uh, or it was blocked 67 to 30. Now, One interesting flip-flopper on this issue was Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. He was, for a while, one of Saudi Arabia's biggest critics in the Senate. In 2018, he partnered with Bernie Sanders in an attempt to invoke the War Powers Act and block the White House from participating in the war in Yemen. 
And as late as February of this year, Murphy was tweeting about spending all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, whether offensive or defensive. This is from a tweet in February. Not sure you read the whole article. He was responding to someone. I argue for a suspension of all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia until there is a substantial change in behavior. Well, it appears that in Chris Murphy's mind, there has been a substantial change in behavior because he voted against the resolution to block weapon sales to the Saudis. The Intercept actually talked to him and he told The Intercept that, quote, this is a true defensive weapons sale. He told The Intercept ahead of the vote. And with the increased pace of Houthi drones coming into Saudi territory, it's actually important for them to have the ability to shoot them. The Houthis are an Iranian back, Iran backed Shia movement that pushed the Saudi backed Yemen government out of power in 2014. Now, according to the Intercepts, uh, that article in the Intercept, Murphy's comments repeat State Department arguments that the 280 Raytheon built advanced medium range air to air missiles, or AMRAMs, which will be used on Saudi Arabia's fighter jets, are defensive in nature. Opponents of the sale have rejected that categorization, a characterization, insisting that the weapon empowers the Saudis to maintain their blockade of Yemeni ports. The labeling of the missiles as defensive, though, permits the White House to claim the sale complies with President Joe Biden's policy earlier this year to forbid U.S. support for offensive operations in Yemen. In Yemen. Now, this resolution to block the weapon sale was introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders, and it was co-sponsored by Senators Rand Paul and Mike Lee. And here is Bernie Sanders explaining why supporting the Saudis' war in Yemen is such an unbelievable disaster. We should be demanding that they end the devastating war in Yemen, which has killed over 230,000 people in one of the very poorest countries on earth. For more than six years, the Saudi-led military intervention in Yemen's civil war has been a key driver of the largest humanitarian disaster in the world, the largest. According to UNICEF, four out of every five children in Yemen needs humanitarian assistance. That is over 11 million children, 400,000 children suffer from severe malnutrition. 1.7 million children have been displaced from their homes by violence from this war. And some 15 million people, more than half of whom are children, do not have access to safe water, sanitation, or hygiene. It really is just absolutely brutal. So why does this happen? Well, redistribution of wealth from U.S. taxpayers to private defense contractors, essentially. It is basically the number one job of any U.S. president. According to Open Secrets, in the past two decades, defense contractors and their extensive network of lobbyists and donors have directed $285 million in campaign contributions and $2.5 billion in lobbying spending to influence defense policy. To further these goals, they hired more than 200 lobbyists who have worked in the same government that regulates and decides funding for the industry. Biden appointed some of the best industry goons to his administration. According to uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd uh, sorry, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken consulted for a private equity firm that emphasizes its access network and expertise in the defense industry. Austin also had a seat on the United United Technologies and Raytheon boards, earning more than $250,000 from the now merged companies. Saudi Arabia benefits from the influence wielded by major U.S. arms manufacturers that would like to sell to them. 
Just four of the biggest companies received 90% of promised sales between 2009 and 2019. Those four, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Boeing, happened to make up four of the top five defense-related companies spending the most on lobbying, pouring over $10 million each into their policy-influencing efforts in 2020 alone. Now, since Biden's inauguration, the State Department also approved an $85 million sale of Raytheon manufactured missiles to Chile and $60 million worth of Lockheed Martin's F-16 aircraft and services to Jordan. So take a step back and think about how vitriolic our politics are at the moment, how much yelling and shouting there is about all manner of nonsense, while this kind of thing just quietly floats under the radar as Democrats and Republicans work hand in hand to continue the money train flowing for the national security state. In fact, just this week, Congress passed a new defense budget, $768 billion to be exact. That's just for one year. The legislation just sailed through Congress with huge bipartisan majority of 363 I's to just 70 nays with nary a debate in the media or anywhere else, really. According to the New York Times, the legislation unveiled hours before the vote put the Democratic-led Congress on track to increase the Pentagon's budget by roughly $24 billion above what President Biden had requested, angering anti-war progressives who had hoped that their party's control of the White House and both houses of Congress would lead to cuts to military programs after decades of growth. Whoops, that didn't happen. Now, Biden, if you recall, pulled out of Afghanistan, which was a genuinely good thing. But even though we officially ended America's longest war, somehow the budgets and the costs, they still go up. And this may be a small thing, but it annoys me so much that the media always uses the yearly budget number when it talks about the defense bills while using the much larger 10-year ticket price for social spending bills. But I digress, because seeing the Build Back Better plan get nickel and dimed into oblivion while defense spending magically just goes up every year. I mean, it's a cliche at this point to point out that no one asks how we're going to pay for it when it comes to defense, but it's just true. It's a monstrosity that we're asked to maintain this massive, bloated, bumbling empire while people starve at home. And it's even worse that we have to help in the starving of the people in Yemen by supporting Saudi Arabia, no matter what. It's also not helpful for Biden and the Democratic Party to renege on most of their promises, right? I mean, I think it's such a good idea to tie in the nickel and diming that's happening right now in regard to the Biden agenda, you know, the Build Back Better agenda, uh, while at the same time, increasing the budget for defense, which is incredibly unnecessary, just breezes on through with no problem. And people are paying attention to that, you know, and what frustrates me about every election cycle where the Democratic Party loses and they lose big is they then turn around, refuse to take personal responsibility for reneging on their promises, and then they just blame progressives, right? They'll they'll br- blame the honestly mostly powerless progressive caucus uh, within Congress. But the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. I was like raising alarm over his appointment from the very beginning because of the fact that he had such cozy ties to the private defense industry. And all you would see in the media was, oh, this is historic. He's African-American. And it goes back to the issue that we were talking about last week, right? The issue of class versus race. And I think oftentimes when that debate rages on, there's this like thought process of, well, you're denying that racism exists in the country. It exists. It's not a denial of it. But when you're talking about just creating this illusion of diversity, 
Um, it's just about like the optics, right? It's not about changing the system in place that's actually cr creating more and more brutality, not just here in the United States, but across the world, right? So Lloyd Austin being black is not that important when you consider his substance and what he stands for. And it's incredibly insulting to, I think, any race when you treat people as if they're just interchangeable, right? Yeah. Um, great. I would love to have a, a defense secretary who is a person of color, but I would also like someone who uh, represents the right things, who actually yeah. wants to make real changes so we're not carrying out you know, brutality <laughs> across the globe. Um, so that, that part of the story really stood out to me as well. Uh, anyway. Yeah. You know, tired is, uh, getting a, a black guy to run the Pentagon wired is abolishing the Pentagon altogether. Uh, but yeah, that, uh, no, it's, um, I mean, when you do, when you talk about stories like this, um, and you see things like what happened this week in with the, you know, with the defense bill, I mean, it, it is crazy that, you know, Biden's asking for money to spend at home and he gets less than half of what he wanted or whatever, or, or even more. Um, then he then asks for money to blow up people abroad and they give him more than he asked for. I mean, it's just, and it just feeds into this kind of cynicism of that. There's just nothing you can, there's just very little you can do with in the current political moment that you voted the Democrats. They, they take power and, uh, this is what we get, just an increasing defense budget with, uh, you know, austerity at home, um, right. that there's just no uh, that there's no real change on that front, that the empire just kind of gets bigger and bigger, dumber and dumber, um, more violent than ever, um, but, you know, more expensive than ever. And that uh, the situation at home just gets worse and worse. So um, mm -hmm. it, it really is. And, and I'm not saying that there's like an easy way out of this kind of trap. Um but there is such bipartisan agreement on on this that it's just like it just shows you how far away we are from real political power or, or real political change in the near term. Like the fact that this kind of thing just sails through and like no one even talks mm -hmm. about it, like the media barely talks about it. I mean, like think about like how much more they talk about other things like and, and often not necessarily like unimportant things, but like. Think about the coverage that like the Texas abortion thing got. Like, of course, that's a big deal. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I think like, a better nine. example, a better example of something that got an insane amount of coverage. And I think it just every time Marjorie Taylor Greene or someone her like her yeah. says something stupid or yeah. like, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're stupid and dangerous people. Yes. But like, they get disproportionate coverage compared yeah. to. Just all of these other issues. And I do think like the Supreme Court, you know, th there could there could be 22 states that completely outlaw abortion altogether oh, yeah. as a result of like the. So I do think that story is important, but there are a, a, just a litany of other issues that are like harped on the Ilhan Omar, Mar, um, Lauren, Lauren Boebert. I don't even know what happened there. Like, it was I don't like even a multi-day know. news cycle. I know. And yeah, I, I I'm didn't even know what happened there. It. But I'm a little, I'm a little bit minimizing it. Like it no, didn't need to be a multi-day news cycle. I, I don't want to come off of suggesting that the that the Supreme Court thing on abortion wasn't uh, a big deal. Like I think it is a big deal. But I think that there's from a media standpoint they cover it because it is kind of the the um, this kind of it fits neatly into the culture war, right? Mm -hmm. That um, yeah. when something fits neatly into the culture war, it will get it will get covered. 
if it does not fit neatly into the culture war, it will not get covered. And sometimes the issues are important, like in the case of the Supreme Court, but sometimes they're unimportant. Like when Lauren Boebert says that Illinois Omar is like a, I don't know, like a towel head or something uh, or whatever. I don't, I don't even know what well, she said. Like uh, the Jihad squad, part of the Jihad oh, squad. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, yeah. But this like, you know, eight hundred, like almost $800 billion, you know, which is, like a giant chunk of the federal budget, the overall federal budget, which could be used for all, like it, like it could transform this country if it was used for social spending. Like it really could, you know, like it would tr- like absolutely transform this country. Um, that just is, it's just like, whoop, whoop. Yep. Just out the door. Let's do it. You know, nothing, yep. n- no, no discussion on it at all. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And I mean, you see how much just a little bit of spending on ordinary Americans improves their lives so significantly, right? It doesn't take much. Um, And you just, you can't get, it's because of the power uh, dynamics that you're talking about, right? When you have uh, an insane amount of power accumulated among um, corporate donors versus unorganized, atomized, average Americans, uh, which is why we constantly talk about the importance of organized labor. And and the good news is we are seeing a lot more movement in that regard. Yeah. Um, so that gives me a little bit of hope. Otherwise, you know, regardless of what you would try to do, Nando, I think I'd be blackpilled. So thank you to those who are like, <laughs> you know, putting their livelihoods on the line, really, to um, go out there and strike and to demand yeah. better. It's, it's really inspiring yeah. stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, Nando's a busy man, uh, so yeah. he has to go. Uh, I'm going to man the ship without him, unfortunately. But uh, Nando, have a great day. Go kick some ass. Uh, you've Thank got you. a lot going on. Yeah. Thank you. And right, you, have you have full confidence that you can man the ship on your own. No problem. <laughs> yes. And you know what well, I'm going to say? I think you're going to. I think you're going to knock this decode out of the park. I think I am. Gonna, I think I am. Because it's a yes. baseball metaphor. Well, you know, a five-tool player such as myself is definitely going to do a good job. <laughs> you have no idea what a five-tool player is. <laughs> I do. I do. You do. Players, yeah, I, I'm married to a former professional baseball player. Of course That's I right. do. Yeah. Right. You know, beginning of our relationship where I pretended to be super interested in sports just to, like, trap his ass. <laughs> just to like trap his ass. Yeah. Trap <laughs> yeah. his ass. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's right. like, now, bitch, we're watching the Kardashians. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I have like the Real Housewives on in the background Hell all yeah. the time. He's like, how did Hell this yeah. happen to me? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get to my decode. And again, thank you, Nando. You're, um, I loved your decode today and appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm going to take uh, a stab at reporting on a little bit of sports news. But the reason why it caught my attention um, isn't because of the sports component, but more about the uh, labor dispute that's currently taking place in Major League Baseball. So what's happening? Well, thanks to an ongoing labor dispute, Major League Baseball is undergoing its first work stoppage in over 30 years. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, announced a lockout after a five-year collective bargaining agreement between owners of the 30 clubs and the players expired. Now, while a strike, uh, a player strike, tends to give the workers the players, uh, a little bit of an advantage. Um, In this case, the leverage uh, is in the owner's court, mostly because of the uh, timing of this work stoppage, because of where we are in the preseason. 
Now, uh, Professor Bob Jarvis from Nova Southeastern University explains that in a lockout, the management tells workers don't show up, while in a strike, workers tell management we're not going to show up. But either way, the factory or the business comes to a standstill because the workers are not there. Now, the reason why there was a lockout is because the collective bargaining agreement expired uh, with the players refusing to sign on to the status quo, which is what the owners want. And to be clear, the owners want the status quo because it's been incredibly lucrative and great for them, whereas the players, the very individuals who are uh, generating the revenue, have seen their income decline. And yes, let's be clear about something. Let's address the elephant in the room. We are talking about professional athletes who tend to make more money than the ordinary worker. But when you really look at Major League Baseball, there's quite a bit of disparity um, in terms of what players make. Usually you hear about the, you know, multi-million dollar contracts signed by veteran star players. Uh, but a lot of the players, a significant percentage do not make anywhere near that. And I'll give you the examples of their pay in just a minute. Now, a lockout is basically the owner's first step in what is likely to be a months long game of chicken between the players um, and the owners over this labor dispute. And it does have some negative ramifications for the players. Right now, the calendar favors ownership. Players can't sign free agent deals, and they're going to get anxious about that. Teams are not allowed to talk to players, major league, or make major league signings or swing trades. They're also not allowed to use the facilities for training. Um, so all of those perks are taken away. They're locked down as a result of the owners making this decision. But the good news is if the players are able to hold fast through late January or even February, the advantage does shift to their side. Obviously, professional athletes, again, tend to enjoy more income, uh, but there are parallel dynamics in this labor dispute, um, parallel dynamics from what we're seeing in the MLB labor dispute and what we tend to see among other ordinary workers, people who work in factories and the service sector. And I want to talk about how important that dynamic is, because it's not about the numbers, right? It's not just about what amount of money people are making. It's about the dynamics at play uh, between the owners, in this case, you know, the capitalists and the workers, in this case, uh, the players. So what is this labor dispute really about? Well, it might sound similar. Uh, it might sound similar to other complaints that you've heard of involving like workers at Nabisco or John Deere, even though the al average salary from a, for an MLB player is much higher just pay close attention to what the underlying issues are in this labor dispute. Uh, it's detailed in this video. Well, the player salaries over the last four or five years have actually declined by four or five percent. And at the same time, franchise values, sponsorship revenue, TV revenue has gone up. So I think they probably want to recalibrate that situation. What's taken place, actually, Scarlett, is that the owners have really kind of manipulated the structure of the payment to young players, meaning the transition from minor league to major league baseball and the, the restrictive elements of that process. And they've actually been able to bring the cost down. That plus an analytics mm -hmm. and being more efficient in spending and targeting players has resulted for young players a real decrease. Of course, you're hearing about you know, all these big deals with the veteran players. They're being paid well where the problem is with the young to middle players. 
it is stunning that the actual revenues for players have gone down over the last four or five years, and the numbers have really gone up for the owners. So I really do think an average person looking on saying, hey, if the owners are making more, the franchises are making more, the players should actually make more. So it really does look from the outside looking in that an adjustment, a more equitable adjustment needs to be made. Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, you're experiencing record revenue with the MLB. Uh, They have diversified their revenue streams. They're making money in so many different ways, not just through ticket sales. A lot of that revenue relies on the very players and all of a sudden, you're noticing that the um, you know amount of money that the players are making has decreased, whereas the amount of money that's being taken in by the owners is increasing. And that's a problem. The players have a huge issue with that, it, along with a bunch of other provisions that were in the original collective bargaining agreement, which they've refused to sign on to for another five years. So let's break things up one by one, okay? Because there are several issues here. Uh, the top issue being the revenue sharing, right? Players feel the industry has grown, but the average major league salary has either remained flat or has dropped. And to be sure, the industry absolutely has grown with the MLB making significantly more revenue through a diversified model that includes licensing and other avenues. Uh, They're not just making money from ticket sales, clearly, but it doesn't look like all that wealth is being shared with the players. Let's watch. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Major League Baseball was making money like never before. In 2019, league revenues totaled $10.7 billion, according to Forbes, marking the 17th consecutive year of record revenues for the game's owners, all of whom, it's worth noting, have seen the value of their franchises increase exponentially in recent years, too. So that financial growth has to have trickled down to the players, right? Wrong. According to the Associated Press, the average player salary has actually dropped more than 6% since the start of the 2017 season, while the median salary has plummeted a whopping 30% since the start of the 2015 campaign. In fact, while many fans tend to view these labor disputes as billionaires versus millionaires, nearly two-thirds of the players on last year's opening day rosters had salaries under $1 million. If you pay close attention to the graphic that the video flashed at the very end, it shows that about 35% of professional Major League Baseball players are uh, making less than $600,000 a year. And again, that is a lot of money, especially compared to what the average worker in America makes. I'm definitely not leaving that out of this equation. However, you also have to take into consideration that the uh, career lifespan for a professional athlete is much, much shorter than the uh, career or the uh, working years of an ordinary American worker. Uh, So I do want to talk about that because they have a limited amount of time to uh, build a nest egg to take care of themselves and their families uh, for the rest of their lives, really. So there was one study that was done in Population Research, was published in Population Research and Policy Review, and they analyzed the longevity of all major league baseball players, okay, uh, in the 20th century. So they're looking at a century worth of data and analyzing just how long their careers on average tend to be. And here's what they found. 
a rookie position player can expect to play just 5.6 years. One in every five position player will have only a single year career. Position players who start younger and begin their career in more recent decades all have longer and more stable careers. Nevertheless, baseball careers are not compressed versions of normal careers, but are substantially skewed toward early exit. So again, uh, you have this massive portion of players making under $600,000 a year. Their careers are usually pretty short-lived because of the fact that, you know, you have to be young, you have to be healthy. You could at any moment have a career-ending injury that cuts uh, your career even shorter. And so they really have a limited number of years to make money. And unlike other professional sports, uh, baseball players usually don't have the name recognition necessary to really cash it in after their professional career uh, is over. Um, You know, oftentimes you see baseball, uh, basketball players or football players make quite a bit of money in um, various partnerships or sponsorships, it's a lot harder for baseball players to do it. So the money that they earn while they're playing is important. And if they're able to generate a significant amount of revenue year after year, season after season, that revenue should be shared equally with these players. And that's just not happening. Now, considering that the MLB is raking in the big bucks, uh, which again, would not be possible without the players, owners should be sharing that money. But of course, they don't want to do it. And another problem is that the owners refuse to be transparent in regard to how much revenue they're bringing in. The players union wants that transparency. They need that transparency. So the players really know whether or not um, they're getting a fair piece of that pie. Now, players feel that too many teams, by the way, are receiving tens of millions in revenue sharing from their counterparts, yet purposefully aren't competing for playoff spots. That's another part of this labor dispute. Uh, The MLB generates a certain amount of money, And every team, regardless of how poorly they're performing, does get a minimum piece of that pie. And this leads to what's being referred to as an anti-competitive provision. Um, Since they qualify for a minimum amount of that pie, uh, what the owners will do is essentially hoard that money for themselves while signing players who are incredibly cheap. And they'll keep those players in incredibly long um, service agreements, right? So uh, they won't be free agents for several years. And what some of these players want is to be let go from those service agreements a little earlier. So when they're free agents, they can actually uh, shop around and make sure that they sign with the team that's paying them what they feel they deserve. So that's another element of this. Um, So in regard to these anti-competitive provisions, uh, this next video gives you a little more detail into what the players are so upset about. Today, instead of paying up for veteran studs, many teams would rather take their chances with some unestablished youngsters. After all, the current CBA allows teams to pay players the league minimum for their first three seasons in the majors, and their salaries are capped by the arbitration process for the next three. And of course, with those perverse incentives, many teams are content to just flat out tank. In fact, super agent Scott Boris recently characterized the current state of baseball as a race to the bottom. We've got problems, and we don't ever want a system that rewards 
being a lesser team. You want a system that always rewards being the better team. With so many teams tanking or just generally avoiding veteran talent in the name of cost effectiveness, you're left with an increasingly disgruntled group of players who have watched their earnings drop off while the game's owners have gotten richer and richer thanks to the lucrative broadcast deals and corporate sponsorships. Mm. So uh, you see the same issue that happens in most uh, companies and corporations across the country. Think about it. The owners want to increase their profits. And how do you increase your profit? By cutting costs. And just like any other company, the biggest cost tends to be labor. In this case, the players. And so they don't invest the money necessary into uh, signing new players to ensure that they have uh, a competitive advantage. And the players are frustrated with that. Imagine being signed onto a team. Uh, you're part of this lengthy service agreement, meaning that you have to you know, work with this team uh, for X number of years. And you see that the owners aren't investing in the team to ensure that it's competitive, to ensure that the team makes it to the playoffs or the World Series. And it's a huge problem. I would be frustrated in that situation. And going back to what I was mentioning earlier in regard to these um, service times, uh, the players feel that it's being manipulated to delay free agency. Owners continue to manipulate players' service time by which young stars have their free agency delayed all while making rosters younger or cheaper. And so considering how short the uh, careers are for professional athletes, these young players, especially young star players, want to be free agents in order to make the money that they deserve when they're at their prime, when they're at the peak of their professional careers. Um, But owners would rather lock them down, uh, lock them in for a longer period of time for lower pay. Now, going back to the MLB commissioner, Manfred, he referred to MLB's implementation of the lockout as defensive. His reasoning, the 1994 to 1995 strike, uh, the last work stoppage in baseball to cost regular season games over 900 in all, uh, came after the league had continued to operate without a new agreement. In fact, uh, he says it's unnecessary to continue. The, in fact, uh, in response to that, Tony Clark, the executive director of the Players Union, says it's unnecessary to continue the dialogue. We obviously had 26 years without a work stoppage, and the industry has continued to do well and grow. And at the first instance in some time of bumpy water, the recourse was a strategic decision to lock players out. So understandably, the players and the uh, union representing them is incredibly frustrated by this. But there could be a huge cost to pay for the owners here, especially if the players um, manage to hold out and uh, drag this out uh, till the beginning of 2022. Because the last time there was a work stoppage was, in fact, in 1994, uh, in the 1990s. And that work stoppage led to the cancellation of the 1994 World Series. And Major League Baseball was hit hard by that, not just that year, but for years to come. Uh, Viewership for professional baseball uh, declined. It dropped considerably. It hadn't really gone up until recent years. And so if owners don't play ball, (laughs) you know, I guess, no pun intended, um, they could miss out on uh, revenue, not just now, but for years and years to come. And so uh, a 
when that happened, by the way, the 1990s work stoppage, the players ended up going on strike because the owners of the Chicago White Sox uh, were pushing to have salary caps on the players. Players were not in favor of that. And as a result, they went on strike. After they went on strike, the owners even decided to just install their own salary cap unilaterally without a negotiation with the union. And uh, players were not pleased by that. This had to be adjudicated in the courts. And get this. Then a district court judge, Sonia Sotomayor, ruled against the owners, which kickstarted a shortened 1995 season. And so we'll see how this all plays out. Again, I don't want anyone to think that I'm comparing the income of professional athletes to what um, service workers or factory workers are making. But I do think the dynamics hold true, regardless of the amount of money we're talking about. When you have a situation in which uh, Major League Baseball is run as a business, you're going to have the owners, you're going to have the people at the very top, the individuals with the capital to buy the teams, basically hoarding the wealth for themselves while cutting costs Uh, that would actually make the teams more competitive. And it looks like they're also um, skimming the money that should be paid to the players and keeping it for themselves. So uh, I'm curious to see how this all plays out. I'm not a big sports person, to be clear about that. But I do think that this labor dispute is um, fascinating, to say the least, and is honestly fueled in part by the labor activity that we're seeing across the country. You know, whether we're talking about Kellogg's, Nabisco, Starbucks, I mean, there's just this uh, revitalized effort to uh, shift the power uh, away from the capitalists to the workers. And it's definitely the only inspiring thing that I see happening in the country right now. Uh, So Kale, I guess you'll discuss this with me since Nando's not here. Yeah, I'm filling in Fernando. I I thought that was really comprehensive. Um, I certainly learned a lot. Like you, I'm not really a a major sports person. So this was, uh, I I don't have much to say about the MLB that you haven't already said. Um, But I think the point that you were making at the end makes a lot of sense. And hopefully it makes a lot of sense to other people that uh, the fact that this is, even though this is isolated and it is among, it's in a situation where it's very atypical. It's uh, the workers get paid a very high salary. Um, you could argue about their status as workers, depending on like, you know, because if, you know, some of these people end up putting a lot of money into investments and by the time you're investing, you're not really a worker anymore. Sorry. Right. But, but the point is, is that like, there is this labor capital dynamic going on and that is a system wide, uh, dynamic. And so the fact that there is a squeeze on profits at the top in this particular industry means that it's also going to be a systemic thing at the same time, because, as an investor, you don't really care what the business is. It could be a baseball team. It could be, you know, Kellogg's. It can be, uh, you know, whatever, a shoe manufacturer, whatever. You don't really care as long as you think you can make a good rate of return on profits, that year after year, you're going to make more money from that process than, you know, investing in some other industry or something. And so the fact that there is this dynamic going on there and the fact that there is this labor upsurge broadly are it's not a coincidence that this is like you're seeing kind of the ebbs and flows of the entire system right now and it just is the case that you know i don't know how this is going to play out i don't know what this means for the future exactly i can't make predictions like that i wish i could but it does seem like looking at history uh typically the labor movement ends up kind of having these upsurges 
uh, when it does, in part because you have workers that are maybe at the the more skilled and the the um, you know you can call them more privileged workers or something um, that workers that are in a position where they actually have a decent living standard that's in decline and then fighting back. And so we've seen that historically when it came to miners, when it came to manufacturers, uh, manufacturer workers, rather. Um, we're seeing that now to a good extent as well with teachers and nurses, people that in general tend to have, uh, you know, a better uh, uh, working conditions and, and wages and um, kind of overall work package than uh, most service sector workers than if you're someone working at, you know, McDonald's or something. Um, and that it's extremely difficult to organize in those sectors. And it becomes, it has at least historically been more, it's been easier in these uh, more, you know, highly skilled sectors. And so I do think, you know, I don't know what this means for the future, but I do think there is something, there is a dynamic that's going on uh, and it's worth taking note of, I think. Um, and, and it's just, it's also like, it's a good example of just like how capitalism as a system works and, and how like mm -hmm. uh, investors, investors in companies like this work. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and again, like the thing that's really stood out to me is the dynamics at play here are very similar to other labor disputes that we've talked about on this show. Um, and it, it, it it doesn't matter how much money you bring in as a worker, right? Like if the dynamics are the same, um, you're going to get screwed over essentially, even though you're the one who's generating the income, the, the revenue um, that's getting everyone paid, right? And, and to see that the investors or the owners um, just hoard that money for themselves while the very people, you know, putting in the work, um, see their standard of living decline or see their, um, you know, piece of the pie shrink year after year, or season after season. It's, it's, I I'm glad that people are recognizing that. I think mm -hmm. it's like the first time that people are like, oh, wait, hold on. We're making a lot of money for this company, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and when you compare your pay relative to what's being brought in, in revenue, um, how could you not be incredibly angry about that and demand a bigger piece of that pie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the whole thing is that this, it's all about the social relationships. It's not like you're saying, it's not about the amount of money necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's what do you have to do every day to get by? And what is your relationship to, you know, your coworkers or to your boss or to management? Uh, and that's where, you know, I don't, I, I think you could study this. I think you could actually figure this out, but my guess is that, you know, the workers, the newer workers who truly just, you know, they're getting by on, you know, the salary that they're being paid, are probably going to be much more inclined to join in this effort. And then those workers who are, you know, probably getting more of their income through, uh, you know, their own investments, their own, you know, stock market, uh, you know, portfolios and things, they're probably going to be a little less interested in this because like their actual class interests are different. It's like, mm -hmm. even though they're like, they might be paid similar ish. I mean, at some level, I mean, they're all, they're all on a very high pay scale. So it, the it's, it's very different than, you know, uh, the differentials in, you know, most other sectors. But at the same time, again, I, I do think, you know, that's, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and hopefully, again, hopefully people take this as a, as a useful example of like how this dynamic in fact plays out generally. Uh, so. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we've got a little time uh, before. Well, actually, um, is she she's here? here actually. Yeah. We could, oh, that's awesome. Okay. Let's great. One more point. No, no, let's do the interview. Um, okay, I'm really cool. looking forward to it. So, uh, 
All right, everyone. Uh, so we're ready for our interview. And joining us today is Liz Featherstone. She's a columnist uh, for Jacobin, also a freelance journalist. She recently wrote uh, a guest column for the New York Times titled Josh Hawley and the Republican Obsession with Manliness. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back with you. I enjoyed your uh, column in the New York Times, and it was something that I've I've certainly been paying attention to, um, not just in the context of Josh Hawley and his statements, yeah. uh, but you're seeing it play out everywhere. Uh, just recently, Tucker Carlson had Nigel Farage on, and they were talking about how Boris Johnson has been made too feminine as a result of contracting coronavirus and just all this nonsense. And so- yeah. Talk to me about why that obsession exists in the first place. Like, what is the objective here? So, I mean, elites have for a long time um, been able to um, tap into um, popular anxieties about masculinity um, to pursue their own agenda. And, um, you know, and, um, and, you know, there, there are always um, anxieties about it, right? Because, because um, um, when as the broad as um, you know there are as as there are cultural changes and changes in the economy, um, the role of men um, changes, and you know this cause you know um, both in the workplace and at home, and and you know this causes a certain amount of distress. And um, during times of distress of that nature, um, there's always a politician. Um, around to say, um, you know, you know, masculinity is in crisis and we can solve it. Um, and in in the case of um, of the current worldwide right wing um, drumbeat on this issue, um, they're exploiting um, a situation in which um, real wages have stagnated or declined in many places. Um, you know, giving. Um, men a lot less of a role in their um, in, in their families and in their communities. Um, there, it's a situation in which um, manufacturing has declined in rich countries, especially the United States. Um, so um, again, like depriving a lot of men of um, both um, like a solid living wage and also ways to contribute to prosperous communities. And and also and also depriving them of um, making stuff. Um, the, there's a really good book called Making It by Lou Uchitel, um, in which he explains, yeah, the loss of manufacturing um, is a is an economic loss, but there's also you know people feel proud of making things you know mm-hmm. that that you can see um, and. Um, and um, and you know stereotypically that is you know that's something more associated with men. Although um, a lot of women worked in manufacturing as well, um, and so you know there the, so so there's a lot so there's just a lot of worldwide anxieties about that. And then meet and then also women have made progress. You know there's um you know there there has been um you know there has been an advance in women's access to many professions um an advance in women's access to higher education um obviously we on the left uh, all agree those are good changes um, um but you know those can that can cause um anxiety as well as it as it changes um as it alters gender hierarchies Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So let me jump in because, you know, what I'm noticing is that while there, 
this has created like the perfect situation for yes. right wingers to wage their culture war against, exactly. you know, feminists uh, in their mind. This is a product of uh, feminists uh, essentially uh, changing what the standards or expectations of men are um, when in reality, yeah. you know, we and there is a very real problem, right? There is a very real problem in terms of enrollment in college. You know, we're seeing yeah. less and yeah. less men um, wanting to go to college uh, right now. The makeup of the uh, of college students is about sixty percent female, forty percent male. Yeah, and I, and the argument here, from us at least, or from you, isn't that this is a product of um, you know. Men losing opportunities has nothing to do with equality for women, but rather how this system is is set up, right? Um, how deindustrialization has uh, led to, and globalization has led to uh, men losing certain opportunities that they previously had. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And in the zero sum game that our um, capitalist society is, some groups advancing. Um, is a loss to other groups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we as socialists want society to be set up differently so that it's not that way, you know, so that, you know, our, um, you know, a, a gain in um, women's human capital is a is an overall gain for all of society. Um, and it doesn't mean that you as a man um, lose your job and, you know, face um, economic insecurity. But the way our society is set up, yeah, I mean, if I'm doing well, um, that could be your loss, you know. And so, um, so I think that that's really important, and that is one of the reasons we are socialists, you know, is that we want our fellow humans to be able to thrive and prosper, not at our expense, you know. Like we want everybody to um, be able to, um, you know, um, to you know, uh, you know, be educated, do work that is rewarding for them, um, and um, and not. Um, and 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 have that not mean that other people don't get to um, you know survive and um, and 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 fulfill their own dreams. So um, that's I think that that's really important. And also, I would say it's not you know we are right and Josh Hawley is wrong. It's um, it's not um, the fault of feminists that men are facing this crisis. But I would say that one of the reasons that we are socialist feminists rather than liberal feminists is what does liberal feminism actually have to offer men? Mm-hmm. You know, like if you think about it, um, yes, I know that lots of men listening to this podcast um, who are perhaps not socialists um, would still consider themselves feminists. And thank you. That's really nice. I'm glad you're a good person. But for a lot of men, um, liberal feminism offers women the chance to advance and therefore for them to lose power in their families and lose labor market power um, and lose power in the larger economy. And um, what do they get back for that? You know, I mean, whereas with socialist feminism, um, it's the context of socialism where um, we want to see um, a, um, a, 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 we want to see um, everybody um, thrive and prosper and, uh, you know, have health care and have education and be housed. Um, you as a man 
get a lot back from that right. in return for your loss of um, special male white male privilege. Right. I mean, we want everyone yeah. to live happy, prosperous yeah. lives. And, yeah. you know, as, as a woman who, you know, I think I've done fine in my career. Um, yeah. But I, I've noticed, you know, it's, I've noticed firsthand, you know, in my relationships, um, how difficult things have been uh, for men who are trying to establish their own careers, um, mm-hmm. you know, in this, in this economy. And it's, it's pretty brutal, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you consider societal expectations for men. And what I found so fascinating in Josh Hawley's spiel is that he doesn't really focus. Well, first off, let, he he has a very narrow definition, as most conservatives do, in regard to what is masculinity, right? And mm-hmm. that narrow definition very narrow. in his mind is, uh, you know, you're not masculine if you're sitting around playing video games all day, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's a lot more to masculinity that gets left out of that narrative, right? So mm-hmm. what is masculinity? For me, I, I would argue it's creating a situation in which men feel confident really being themselves, mm-hmm. not necessarily yeah. being traditionally masculine. That's right. Um, well, so I think that's right. And what Josh Hawley is missing is, so um, I, I found um, what really struck me was, I, you know, he's, he, he talked about, you know, that, that men play, you know, men play too many video games. Um, they um, watch too much pornography. Um, they are, um, you know, more worrisomely um, suffering from a lot of, um mental illness, mental distress, um, and, um, and joblessness. And, uh, you know, um, what I, so I, I think, you know, the, all of those are very real, um, problems and the liberal media could, could only, um, make fun of it, you know, and, and I thought that's scary to me because, I do not obviously support Josh Hawley's political agenda. I think he's terrifying um, and um, and um, and close to f- fascist. And I, I don't think we should let him have this very real cause of the distress of men. We are also, as the left, are concerned about men too. Um, and um, and but I think that you're you're right. One of our our critiques is that. Um, he he's um he's he's defining the well-being of men so narrowly like he's right to be concerned about them men have um high rates higher rates of suicide than women they have higher rates of drug overdose um but several a lot of things can contribute to that and one of them can be the pressure to be masculine as he conventionally um you know conceives of it i mean the you know that many you know men are um you know they may like they may be gay or they may have non traditionally mas- masculine interests like you know they might be you know they might be nerds um you know they might um you know they might be they might be transgender they might actually um need to be women you know and um and Josh Hawley's worldview um offers um, no room for any of the cultural evolution that might um, make that possible that I think for a lot of men, um, you know, will uh, d- will improve their well-being. Um, that said, 
you know, lots of men are traditionally masculine, want to be traditionally masculine, and they don't find um, the liberals or the left um, offering them very much of a, a welcoming space, you know, mm-hmm. as as we hear a lot from liberals and um, and and Democrats, you know, that men are the problem, you know, men are constantly, you know, um, you know, men are under, uh, under suspicion with, uh, with, um, with me too. They're the cause that they're at the root of so many social ills like gun violence, um, you know, and, you know, they're, um, and, um, you know, which is true, but on the other hand, that um, the progressive side um, hasn't done a very good job of offering a positive vision for um, masculinity or men, or even a, a much of a positive um, idea of, you know, what is what is men's place in society now? Right. Yeah. You know, the thing that stands out to me the most about this is um, just how much people, both men and women, um, need to have a purpose in life. Yes. Right. And and yeah. I think that one of the biggest myths about humans in general that we get from um, the elite, from our politicians, is that we're just all inherently lazy. And if we could just collect government checks and sit on our you know butts and watch TV all day, that's exactly yeah. what we do. But a lot of this depression um, that it, it, that you see among men in this country mm-hmm. um like the core of that is they're, you know, they, they don't feel that sense of purpose and they don't feel like they're able to provide for themselves and their families the way that they once were able to do. Right. But pr- exactly. prior to, you know, deindustrialization and everything. And so, exactly. you know, can, talk can about I, what. The, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I, I just that I agree with what you said so much. And I just wanted to add a little bit to it. Um, so. Um, I think that's exactly right. And um, so one of the reasons that um, Josh Hawley, um, I think, was in, um, you know, has been inspired along these lines is that in 2008, he wrote what is a surprisingly good book about Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and, um, and, you know, obviously, um, Roosevelt was um, a, um, you know, genocidal awful, awful um, racist. Um, and in fact, Josh Hawley um, criticizes him for that in his book, because Josh Hawley wrote this before he was um, the person he is today. He wrote this when he was like a skinny historian, probably worrying about his masculinity. Um, and um, and so, uh, um, so, so, so anyway, uh, one of the things that is so interesting in that book is that, um, is how compelling Holly clearly finds um, um, Roosevelt's um, vision of collective purpose, you know, for, you know, and that, um, you know, and some of that was, was, was terrible and was about conquest and, um, and colonial and imperialism, but some of it was about the national park system, you know, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and, you know, that, that there is a a sense um, in, in which, um, um, you know, like men and masculinity um, are um, in, in a in a sense um, in crisis because um, we don't have uh, we don't have that we don't have that um, common national purpose and a sense of this is where you fit in. And I noticed um, a, f- a couple of years ago, my son, who doesn't really read that much, was um, r- repeatedly reading 
a young adult book about um, a kid who um, was a kid who was part of the Norwegian resistance to the Nazis in World War II. Um, and I, and, that I, and I noticed he was like watching a lot of World War II movies. And, and it occurred to me that is really, um, the World War II was the last time the liberal world had a problem that, um, to which the solution was met. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and yeah. yeah. And when you go to um, baseball, get Yankees stadium and they honor the veteran of the game, you know, the, every time you go to Yankee stadium, I don't know if you go, but, um, but they, they always honor a veteran and, um, and disproportionately, even though there are so few of them left alive, it's a world war two veteran, you know? And so it'd be like some really old person. Um, but at we, everyone cheers the loudest for them, you know, because it, it's the last, it's, it's the, it's the last time that, you know, it was, there, there was this sort of whole national purpose involving men that we all feel good about. Everyone feels kind of bad about the post 9-11 wars because they were so terrible. Um, you know, Americans largely feel pretty bad about Vietnam because uh, those were, and for very good reasons, but, um, but it's like, yeah, World War II, it's like, people are like, oh yeah, you know, it's like, there's a reason I think for that nostalgia. Um, which is not yeah. to say that men can only find purpose in um, in war. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually it's it's fascinating that you bring this up. And as you're talking about, you know, purpose and and joining together collectively to accomplish something, I, I started thinking about what we're experiencing in the United States with these militia groups, right? With mm -hmm. these young men um, joining together to honestly carry out some pretty terrible uh, behavior and activities. Um, I think about what happened on January 6th. And one through line in the interviews with these people that I've noticed is that they genuinely feel that they're joining forces with their fellow Americans to do some glorious thing, like in their minds, you know, save democracy. Yeah. They, they, they think yeah. that the election was stolen. Of course, that's not true. Yeah. But in their minds, it, it was stolen. And they're yeah. joining their fellow Americans, their fellow men um, to take the country back. And that it actually is dangerous that the yeah. uh, left has not offered um, a good enough solution to kind of mitigate that. Because with the right taking hold of this, yeah. I think that they're directing the rage in incredibly dangerous places. Definitely, yeah, and um, and uh, it is it's it's very dangerous, and 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 I I think that you're absolutely right about that, and you know, and and even. You could sort of see the um, the 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 Democrats kind of um, fumbling this even at obvious moments. Like, so you know, um, Biden gets this um, you know this this infrastructure plan together. It's it, you know it's it's pretty decent, um, and um, in, in some ways, I know there's it, that's a, that's another discussion. Um, but um, but as the infrastructure plan was coming together, there was all of this criticism, even from inside the White House, all this criticism from fellow Democrats and from many like progressives who, you know, we would normally agree with, um, all this criticism that, um, that, you know, well, infrastructure, you know, that's, that's really um, a white male thing. And, you know, these are like, these are really jobs for men, you know, so there, then there was sort of this whole need to like reframe it as like, 
well, care work is also infrastructure. It's like, would it be so bad for the, for, for the Democrats to have something that looked to a large number of men like a thing for them? You know, like yeah. if you look at the electoral patterns, if you look at the wi- worldwide migration of men to the far right, like that is like, um, like th- those, those kinds of, um, you know, the, the sort of reflexive um, liberal, um, de- like Democrat assumption that if something is for men, that's necessarily bad and sexist, I think is really, um, like, is, is really very dangerous and we need to rethink it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, you know, most of our politics at this point has just kind of boiled down to culture war narratives and uh-huh. both sides have kind of dug their heels in what they believe with the narrative, like where they fall in that narrative. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it kind of blinds people to what's really happening in, in, in the real world. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you bring and up. And by the way, speaking yeah. of that, just we should we should make sure to say um, in case people are not fully, um, you you know, attuned to these to these these politics, um, of course, Josh Hawley um, um, voted against the infrastructure bill. You know, for all yeah. his talk about masculinity and men and how they need jobs, you know, this massive um, this massive public money giving lots and lots of jo- good jobs to men um, was um, not only not only did he not vote for it, he called it woke right uh, like right. So I mean, that's I mean, just like so so for him like i mean so obviously his concerns about actual men and their well-being um, are completely disingenuous right i mean i think that his uh column uh, or not his column his you know yeah. rants about the lack of masculinity is really just about directing the frustration and the ire of men toward women, right? The women yeah. feminists, they're the problem. He doesn't really offer yeah. a solution. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk about solutions because yeah. I think it's important for us yeah. to offer them. You bring up um, deindustrialization, changing people's like political ideas and views. The left has kind of struggled with how to respond to deindustrialization. Um, the green new deal has been pitched as one solution, but um you know, there's still a challenge um, in getting workers on board. So, you know, what do you think we should do in response to all of this? What would be a good solution? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think there's, so there's different parts of the problem. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the problem is, um, is the actual um, well-being of men and boys, which, um, which requires, more um which requires more resources like more um more resources for education um boys need more um you know um i mean it sounds stereotypical but a lot of boys do need access to sports you know team sports and um all this stuff that is like woefully absent from um, many in many schools and communities um because it costs money um the Republicans, by the way, uh, and Josh Hawley have no interest in providing any of that. Um, men, like men and boys, need a lot more access to um, mental health care resources, substance abuse resources. Again, not something the Republicans are very interested in providing, but definitely um, all stuff that um, that can be a priority for the left. Um, 
And um, and then as as far as yeah, I think that we do need an industrial policy, um, and and I think that um, the the Green New Deal certainly contains that, um, and and I I think that a lot of um, I I think that a lot can be um, done on our side to um, to combat. Um, the perception that um, that green things are gendered, <laughs> like, and that you know, because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of culture war in that direction too, where um, you know, where the um, the right sort of frames um, anything ecological or green as kind of sissy, and um, and you know, that's um, that's. Uh, in in one way an obstacle um for our side but i don't think I, I think that we could also do a much better job of messaging like rather than say okay that's a, like that's kind of homophobic bullshit which it is i mean but we shouldn't stop there i mean i think mm-hmm. that you know we really have to um we, we really have to um ag- aggressively um push the green new deal um you know have um, visual imagery involving men in it, you know, I mean, you just kind of have to, um, you know, you, you have to put um, across um, a, like a, a better and more convincing um, message for mass politics. Um, yeah. you, know, you can't just, you know, say like, oh, that person is a fascist. Don't listen to them. Right. I, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Absolutely. Well, I want to move on to uh, the flip side um, because, you know, we've been pretty critical of Josh Hawley and the right wing, Um, you know, they deserve it, but there was another piece that you wrote in Jacobin that I found fascinating. Um, Liberals are increasingly embarking on dangerous flights from reality. And uh, Jen Pan on uh, the Jacobin show recently did a fantastic segment that got into the details of various conspiracy theories that uh, liberals have kind of fallen for. Um, And usually Mm -hmm. with conspiracy theories, there's like a sliver of reality um, that and then the rest of the narrative kind of reinforces Uh preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you write about it as well. And I'm just curious, uh, what are you noticing with you know, these flights from reality on the left? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it, it's, it's wild because um, it's in, it's something that um, it's part of the liberal brand to um, be anchored in reality, to be rooted in science. I mean, this is like, um, you know, it, like those signs that say in this house, we believe in science, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and the, um, you know, the pro science rally and, you know, they, um, um, the, 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 all those t-shirts, proud member of the reality based community from the Bush era, you know, this is, it's really part of the liberal image. Um, and, um, and, you know, and the, the, the Trump administration sort of, um, you know, reinforce liberals in this smug belief that they were the reality um, people because Trump was so often thoroughly unmoored from reality in extremely obvious ways. Um, but we're really seeing um, the like the wheels come off. I mean, the um, the um, immense paranoia about Russia, um, immense paranoia about China. Um, 
really, um, um, you know, the really, um, re really surreal, like breathless coverage of these geopolitical threats um, um, that I that are not um, serious threats to our national security. Um, and, um, and then, um, you know, as, as much as, as, as crazy as the far right has been on COVID issues, um, I would say there have been also times when the liberals have matched them, you know, just to be oppositional, you know, just to be like, mm -hmm. whatever the right says, we're going to say the opposite. So, you know, if Trump wants to keep schools open, we want to keep them closed. If the right says that children must, uh, children and all people must wear, uh, must never have to wear a mask, we're going to say they should always wear a mask. Right, you know? right. I mean, yeah. and you know, like it's it's really like um, it, it's. I, it's hard I, to I, navigate the truth, honestly, with with coronavirus and honestly, that's it, increasingly it. more and more topics in the news. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I've fallen for some of that stuff and oh, it's not because I'm looking to be like yeah. misinformed, but it's because the dominant narrative tends to be whatever is in opposition to what the right wants. That's and sometimes right. it's not it's not 100 percent correct. You know, that's right. And, and you yeah. know, and to give us all a break, there have been a lot. Um, you know, it has been a fast breaking um, story. We are not epidemiologists. We are just trying to keep ourselves and our families safe. Um, but, um, but the, um, the, uh, the ideological um, heat brought to um, so many of these topics has resulted in a, um, in, in a sort of just opposite day mentality, like, well, whatever they say, it's, you know, it's definitely going to be the opposite. Um, and, um, you know, so, so, so I, I think there is um, a really, um, it, there's a really irrational discourse out there. And a lot of it is coming from liberals, um, as well as the far right. And I, I would say with the Russia and China stuff, I really, I, I, I truly find it terrifying. Um, I think that, um, I think that we are, um, the it it looks like uh, looks like a lot of that is to rationalize um you know um multiple wars all over the globe um you know and um and to give cover for um more massive um spent military spending um when we have so many social needs at home very urgent very urgent needs our public sector and um and also you know it's a terrifying um it's a terrifying time to start more military conflict um and that's where i think a lot of this um, conspiracy theory is going like a lot of it right. is meant to drum up popular hysteria and um and support for um military adventures that um that we we can um, in no way sustain yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you on that. And what I've noticed during the Trump administration is this complete whitewashing, this laundering of what really took place during the Bush administration. And, mm -hmm. you know, the yeah. 
uh, war crimes that were committed in his administration by his administration have just been completely forgotten about. Um, and that Bush era thinking has now become a pretty dominant part of the Democratic Party, which is pretty terrifying. Yeah. And, you know, so, something that I came across yesterday was this poll. Um, it was written about in Axios and it found that a huge portion of young Democratic voters, college students, to be precise, uh, do not believe in befriending uh, anyone on the right, uh, do not want to date anyone on the right, which I, that's fine. Uh, I don't mind okay, that. Okay, okay. But, but what, what stood out to me was just like this unwillingness um, to have co difficult conversations. Let's keep it yeah. real. It would, it, they are difficult. But yeah. to just have a conversation with someone on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. And I used to fall in the camp of, no, I don't want, I don't want to have conversations with them. I don't want to be their friends. But I've grown up a little bit and I realized that what's happening is you have these two different bubbles where neither mm -hmm. side's really communicating with one another. They're not striking up any type of friendship. And yeah. that mm -hmm. makes people a little more like they dig their heels in more in what they believe, whether it's conspiracy yeah. theories or just their political ideology overall. And, yeah. and how do we kind of break through that? Right. Like how do we convince yeah. people that, Hey, you know what? They are hard. Com these are hard conversations to have, but they're important conversations to have because you're exposing a different ideology to people who might need to see it. And also I do think that it would um, maybe prevent some of the conspiracy theories that are, you know, popping up on both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think we I, I think that people are becoming more reluctant to engage um, anybody who doesn't already agree with them, um, and um, and I, I think that um, I, I think that a lot of it is the um, the internet because the internet makes it so not fun to interact with people who disagree with you, um, you know, and, and it has, and um, our algorithms um, steer us um, more and, you know, more and more toward, um, toward, toward conflict and toward the kind of engagement that is just going to make you really mad or, or hurt your feelings. And, you know, um, and that's just unpleasant, you know, whereas like, you know, when we interact with people who don't share our views um, in real life, it's much different than that, you know? I mean, it's like, whether it's, you know, um, family members of, of, you know, of ours who don't want to get vaccinated, you know, whatever, it's like, it's not like you're only going to fight about that and not see any other aspect of that person. You know, you're, you're going to also see their humanity and, you know, you know, text them like about a lot of other topics and, you know, you know, be, um, you know, be friends, you know, uh, whereas totally. like, um, and, um, and, um, and, you know, when, and, and similarly, when you get out in the world and organize and knock on doors and you meet somebody who has like really like opposite politics to you, you know, you don't usually like just yell at each other like you would on the internet. You know, you usually have like a respectful conversation and it's kind of funny and you joke around about how much you see things differently. And, you know, maybe uh, like, um, like maybe there's a spark, maybe somebody, you know, leaves the conversation with a, with a different idea, you know, I mean, and, um, and I just, I really think um, I, I know that's a little bit of a simplistic um, old person, take but i think that um 
I think that the more that we have interactions um, with humans off the internet, the better, not only for our own um, mental health and well-being, but also for our politics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, when I moved into the building I'm in now, um, I remembered like I, I had my husband's bike. I'm trying to like walk it up the stairs. And one of my neighbors um, immediately helped me out and we struck a friendship. Like we're great friends. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until a few years later, we were in an HOA meeting. Uh, someone had said something critical of Trump and he had a negative reaction to it. And I mm -hmm. realized he's a Trump supporter mm -hmm. and he's literally my favorite person in the building. Yeah. And so once I realized like, you had no, you know, you, you, yeah. knew, you knew, you knew other good qualities about him, exactly. which everybody has. And, um, yeah having that friendship um, really opened my mind up to having the difficult conversations um, mm -hmm. and, and not being afraid uh, to have them. Cause I really think that's the, uh, one of the important elements of like moving toward a better country, you know, we're just so divided. Yeah. And I think that the, um, in some cases, manufactured culture war narratives um, are very much yeah. intentionally dividing us and we got to fight back Definitely. against that. Definitely. But Liz, uh, this was such a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I encourage everyone to read um, both the pieces that we talked about, uh, Josh Hawley and the Republican Obsession with Manliness. That's in the New York Times. And the uh, Jacobin uh, piece is liberals are increasingly embarking on dangerous flights from reality. Uh, Liz, thank you again. And I hope you'll come back soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. All right. That was great. That was great. This is awesome. She is awesome. She's a great columnist. People should read her work whenever it's published and we published quite a bit of it in Jacobin. So that's, you want, you want the, the lies of Featherstone takes, you got to come to us. Um, but I'm here for the last little chunk of the show because we're going to take some questions from you guys. So uh, if you want to submit a super chat uh, in the comment section, or if you want to, if you're a YouTube member, you can just ask us a question um, we actually got one earlier in the show that I think is a good place to start. Uh, Parker writes, uh, 2022 looks very bleak, but primary season is approaching in just three months. How do we get people to focus on the good candidates taking on corporate Democrats? Honestly, I think um, the only thing I've seen really work is having a good ground game. So if there's a particular uh, candidate that's primarying a corporate Democrat that you really believe in, get involved with the campaign, do the canvassing and um, make a good case uh, to the, the voters in either the district or the state. Um, I do think that primaries are far more important than the actual general election. Once you're mm -hmm. at the general election, oftentimes like it's too late. Right. And, and you're, you have to choose between two awful candidates. Um, but I think if people are a lot more active during the primaries in terms of helping with those uh, campaigns, uh, maybe we'll have better options. And I've seen a lot of success with how uh, DSA in New York organizes around um, various candidates on a local level. And I think there's something that, that can be learned from that. Yeah, I think that's, I totally agree with all of that. Um, I think the one thing I would add, uh, because I think like, so the New York City DSA chapter, for instance, is the largest DSA chapter in the country. Um, and they've won quite a few elections. They've also lost a few elections that, um, but I do think part of their their winning comes out of like the sheer numbers that they have, that they just have like an incredible volunteer manpower to, to throw into these races. Um, and that matters a great deal. Uh, and not every part of the country is going to have that, obviously. I think in addition to that, you want that, obviously, if you can get it. 
But uh, I think for a lot of, you know, a lot of parts of the country, you know, it's, it's getting unions behind you. It's, it's getting these organized groups that um, have a real like relationship are actually a part of the working class in these, uh, in these parts of the country. Um, because I, I think what we've seen over the last few years, um, and especially the last year with a, a few pretty big races like India Walton's, like Nina Turner's, um, that, you know, when the Democratic Party establishment broadly lines up against you, uh, a lot of voters are going to make, I think, a fairly rational decision, given the fact that most voters overwhelmingly are low information voters. They're not spending their time, you know, looking up things about politics or about local races. Um, that if they see the entire party fighting against this insurgent, they're going to say, ooh, maybe that's this is a dangerous choice. And, you know, the Republicans are right around the corner. So I'd really rather just, you know, go with the choice that, you know, I know is that my party's okay with. And, um, and that's a, a really challenging situation, obviously. Um, and I think the only way you overcome that is through massive ground game, like Leanna saying that, like, you have to be able to get to people's doors multiple times, you know, many, many times within the course of a year, uh, and talk to people and basically build up, uh, you know, your own kind of firewall against the Democratic Party establishment coming down against you, where people feel like, oh, yeah, actually, yes, the party wants these other, they want these candidates with these priorities, but I'm right to want this other candidate, this insurgent candidate, because they're actually fighting for my interests. And getting people to like see that distinction and also like understand like, part of it's information. Um, and part of it's also like convincing people that you actually have a shot. Um, and so I think that's where also, in addition to like getting, you know, unions behind you in order to get the manpower, it also gives you greater legitimacy of like, oh, actually there's like real groups in society that take you seriously. And that like, you're not just going in there, you know, as a total crazy ideologue, you know, like swinging at everyone and will, you know, be taken out in the next term or whatever by like, you know, a right winger or something. Um, it's it's both the, the capacity and also um, the perception that you actually are a viable candidate and attached to a viable political project. Yep. Um, so, yeah, send us more questions. Um M. Rochelle uh, just wrote, uh, hi, Anna. I just want to say that my four-year-old daughter loves you. She's been hearing your voice her whole life. (laughs) It's going to make me cry. Thank you. It's really sweet. And you just made my day. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's very kind. Um, Yeah. Uh, So again, we have a couple moments. So I'm looking, I'm trying to see if I missed anything, but um, send us a question or two. I guess the one thing I'll, I'll throw in here while we're waiting for a moment is obviously, I'm sure, uh, Anna, you heard the good news. I'm sure a lot of people have also heard the good news of the uh, Buffalo uh, Starbucks uh, union. The um, the yeah. workers at a Buffalo Starbucks uh, successfully unionized, and um, I think I think there's it's it's okay. To, I like I have a little bit of a mixed reaction. Like obviously, it's like incredible. Like you know, like that's a that's an amazing feat, and we should all be like this. This is an actual success that we should be proud of. Um, and, uh, for what it's worth, I do think that for workers to take the step to try to fight, to unionize, um, you know, you need to see other people who are doing the same thing and winning that, you know, because it is a massive, scary undertaking for people. And so to see like that it's actually possible, especially in a service sector is I think, uh, incredibly important. Um, 
Yeah. Let me, let me just um, buttress your point because a, a lot of workers do have a lot on the line when they uh, decide to strike or when they decide to uh, unionize. Um, you know, on during the same week that we got this positive news with Starbucks, uh, we learned that Kellogg's, um, in response to the striking workers, uh, uh, voting down uh, the latest offer. Um, the workers did, yeah. The, the workers, yeah, they rejected the latest offer. Um, Kellogg's decided, all right, well, then we're going to permanently hire uh, the scabs. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, you know, there again, there's a lot on the line. But I think that when you look at our current political landscape, um, there's no other path forward. There just isn't. Um, if you rely solely on electoral politics, I think you're going to be disappointed again and again. That's not saying that I'm discouraging anyone from voting or getting involved in electoral politics, but that's just one part of, of getting to where we want to go, right? We, we need to focus on power and just electing the right people does nothing to shift the power dynamic, the imbalance of power that we're seeing in this country uh, between capital and workers. And so it's, it's again, the only thing that's really giving me any hope at this moment, because um, mm -hmm. the Democratic Party is so incredibly disappointing, and uh, especially the Biden administration. I wasn't one of these delusional, naive people who thought Biden was going to be like this incredible progressive you know, president. But in, in some areas, he's been even more disappointing than I had predicted, you right. know, and so that could very quickly make you want to give up. But when you look at the labor movement that's happening in the country, I think that's the that's where we see some positivity, but also that's where we see a real fight for power. And that's what we need the most. Yeah. Yeah. I, so again, I agree with all of that. Um, I said a moment ago, I have a little bit of a mixed reaction and I think it's, it's worth having, again, I think it's worth celebrating a victory when you get one. Um, but I think it's also fine and probably um, reasonable or, you know, more appropriate to, um, to not get, you know, too ahead of ourselves, um, because at the same time, there was actually three Starbucks that were three Starbucks um, franchises that were uh, in the process of going through a unionization uh, battle. And obviously one of them succeeded. There's another one that it looks like it's um, it's like a too close to call situation that there's probably going to be some challenges. And so it's unclear what the result of that will be, although more likely than not, it's probably going to fail because of the nature of how you know, a too close to call uh, situation goes in this country right now. Um, and then the third store uh, voted against unionizing. And so, again, I think, you know, the same thing with like the Bessemer Union and all these unions that we see like these these high profile, um, you know, union efforts. Uh, and it is kind of strange that like the, you know, every single major, you know, uh, newspaper and news outlet has a story covering the, the Starbucks uh union whereas like there's like no coverage at all for like the teamsters election which you know affects way more people but regardless the point is just that like organizing in the service sector is incredibly hard and um you know bessemer is not service sector but it's just organizing anywhere is incredibly hard right now uh and that the workers who vote down you know unionization are not doing so you know like because they love the boss or you know because they um they hate themselves or they hate their fellow workers Maybe some of that's true in isolated cases, but um, not across the board. That's, that just can't be true um, because workers do have an interest in having greater democracy within the workplace. It's the fact that it's, again, an incredibly uh, scary undertaking where like 
you doing this might result in punishments from the people that you depend on for your yeah. livelihood. And so it's a good development. Like it's, it's like when you see like a service sector uh, uh, workplace get unionized, I think it's a good reminder of we can in fact organize the service sector. It's been historically, you know, and uniquely pretty like difficult. Um, but, you know, it's, we need to like, you know, come out of this thinking, you know, well, what did they do right there that others didn't do right? How, how do we be, you know, sober about this and try to like pick up some new tools or some new lessons or something? Um, because more often than not, we're still going to keep losing. And so, you know, this is just one uh, moment, a, a good moment for this one, for, for Buffalo. Um, and there's a whole lot more to come, hopefully. So, um let me um let's see if any other thoughts. I want to jump to another question. Uh yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um Eclectic Mistletoe <laughs> uh <laughs> writes, uh it's frustrating uh that some men some men see being green as unmanly, such as I'm throwing my plastic bottle in the trash like a real man does. Um, how do we change this? That's a I mean, that's not an easy question to answer. Um I don't know. I don't know how to change that. Uh, I, I think we need, like for me, ma like masculinity, I don't have a narrow definition for it. Right. So for me, masculinity is a, like a man who's confident in, in who he is and lives his life the way he, you know, feels he needs to live it. And, and does it like the confidence of just being who you are, despite the criticism that you might get from, you know, people who believe in traditional masculinity. And like, I'm really proud, like not to get too personal, but I'm like really proud of my husband because he's physically speaking, you know, you would think he's like a jock or like a traditionally masculine guy. He's way more sensitive than I am. Like we were watching like an episode of Ted Lasso the other night and there was an emotional scene and um, he was sobbing like, and I had like no tears. I felt nothing, which I don't know. Maybe that doesn't speak so highly of me, but um, like, I, like, I love him. Like, I love that he's just openly a sensitive person. And I think what we could do on a personal level to help is to reward that, like to applaud that and, um, you know, to, to counter the narratives coming from the narrow minded people. But outside of that, I'm not sure. Like, Kale, do you have an answer? Uh, maybe something approaching one. I, I, it's, it's tough. I think part of it is, you know, people are strange and idiosyncratic. They have all different weird ideas about the world and they come up with, you know, their particular ideological constructions to make sense of it, you know? And so for some people that's going to be doubling down on masculinity, some people that's going to be rejecting it. It's, you know, and in a moment where there's, you know, just so much inequality and, and so much kind of turmoil in like everyday life where like, you know, people experience pretty major crises all the time, um, both like real in their, you know, in their house, uh, you know, economically, socially. Um, and then, you know, there's all these like larger social phenomena that feel like they're looming over us all the time, whether it's like, you know, um, you know, people getting up, uh, afraid of like protests, protesters or protest movements or something, or the fact that, you know, climate change, like the, there's these larger than that, you know, than their, you know, immediate live, you know, forces that um, loom over us. And I think, you know, climate, you know, the green stuff is tough because um, part of it, I mean, part of the real challenge is just the fact that like, 
the green movement broadly would, you know, uh, has been led mostly by middle-class people for the last 30, 40 years. Um, it's been pretty thoroughly decoupled from, uh, from the working class, uh, not, not exclusively or not entirely. Um, but the actual like green movement, like has been something of a, of a middle-class phenomenon. And that's where there's all this emphasis on, you know, you need to reuse and recycle that, you know, metal straws. Personal responsibility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, that like, your your little impact, you know, and like how you throw out that bottle is like has these massive consequences attached to it. Uh, when in reality, of course, that's not true. Um, right. And should you know, should we recycle? Yeah, but like at the level of society, like at the level of an individual, it's it really doesn't actually matter that much. Um, and if you personally decide to recycle, great. You, I hope you feel good. <laughs> but like the thing is that like I think what the green left needs to do to get away from some of these kind of more out there insane kind of like ideological mechanizations where it's like, you know, Oh, to be green is to actually to be cucked. It's to be, you know, not enough of a man or something. Um, you know, that's, I think is just kind of like a displaced feeling of like resentment towards middle-class people and towards like professional types. Um, and, you know, uh, the whole, like, the stereotypical kind of, like, metrosexual kind of, like, urban elite, uh, urban creative class person, someone who goes in, um, to, you know, to uh, to Dumbo um, in New York and, like, sits at a desk with, like, their feet up and, like, they're wearing a hoodie and they're, like, deciding, well, how how do we actually, you know, uh, market this product to the to the masses and, and make them feel good? Or it's, like, that kind of, like, it's those kind of people that people rightfully reject because they're like, yeah, these people are assholes. Um, and like, that's who leads the like, and we need to really make sacrifices to take care of the planet. Uh, so I think it's just, I mean, like the labor movement has, you know, like the AFL-CIO has expressed that like climate change is a massive issue. Um, you know, they have their solutions. The green left has their solutions. And I do think there has to be some kind of reconciliation where, uh, the left and like the, the green movement to be, you know, I'm, I keep using square, scare quotes kind of off screen because like it's a, it's a strange kind of amalgamation of a number of groups and people and whatever. But I do think they have to take the interests and like the proposals of workers and of unions far more seriously. Um, and they do have to just focus, I think more and more on like industrial policy and of jobs and of like, are we in fact rebuilding people's lives in such a way that like they actually have greater power over their lives? And the thing is that like working class politics are inevitably also going to be low carbon politics that, um, you know, that uh, that's maybe a discussion for another time, but I do think it's, it's just, it's the left has to take these uh, demands and like the interests of workers as they're expressed a little bit more seriously. Um, and, and I think once you are focused more on, jobs and on like rebuilding you know people's actual world around them their actual like communities and neighborhoods and you know energy grids in such a way that it's you know they see it as in, directly in their benefit um i think you'll get away from some of these like you know again these more kind of like ideological some of these more like you know um it, the environment is a gendered issue kind of things right <laughs> yeah i agree um last okay one more one more super chat um 
from Lee, uh, who uh, I know Lee and I appreciate it. And I saw the good news you posted up in the chat. Um, and I'm very happy to see that. But Lee writes, not to pee on the parade, but getting the first contract in Buffalo will take at least a year. And that's that's the other thing that, um, again, to be sober about this, uh, it's, again, because like our labor law is so messed up in this country. Um, it's basically designed to like, to, to squelch labor activity, just to, to destroy, you know, unionization. And so the fact that you can even like the workers can successfully, you know, vote to unionize doesn't mean of course that they don't have a contract yet. They have to actually get the contract now with Starbucks and that's going to be a whole, you know, second half of this fight. So, you know, but all the more reason that you should be supporting those workers because they're in for a long fight right now. So. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, well, I think we can uh, call it there. Uh, I hope everyone has a good weekend. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, I think it's going to be our last one for the year because the holidays are coming up. Um, yep. So Nando, Nando better better be here. Okay. No, I'm not going to be uh, lenient on Nando unless oh, he's yeah, no. here. <laughs> so because yeah, um, it is going to be our last show of the of the year, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. So. Anyway, yeah, uh, had a lot of fun on the show today. Everyone, make sure you check out um, uh, the articles that were, or the columns that were written by, is it Liza or Lisa? Liza. Okay, sorry, I think I messed up her name. You should correct me, Kale. How embarrassing. Um, But anyway, her work is incredible. You should read it and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already and subscribe to uh, the Jacobin Magazine if you haven't already. Uh, The latest episode dedicated to the issue of crime, I think is an important one. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, foibles, a lot of mistakes made on the left in, in responding to the crime wave. And I, it's really frustrating, but that's another topic for another day, which we've touched on in the past, but we'll, we'll continue having those conversations. Anyway, everyone have an awesome weekend. Kale, you have an awesome weekend. Anna, you have and an awesome weekend. I will. I will. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.